Hi, this is Ryan Hill, uh, and I'm with Nell Breyer, who is a research affiliate at the MIT Center for Advanced Visual Studies. She was a digital ARM uh, fellow at the Dance Theater Workshop at DTW uh, in uh, 2003, and from 2000 to 2002, she conducted research on digital video technologies at the Media Laboratory for Arts and Sciences at MIT. She holds a um, an MSc in cognitive neuroscience in cognitive neuroscience from Oxford University and an MS in media arts and sciences from MIT. And her work focuses on the intersection of dance, new media, and visual art. In 2008, she uh, recently she uh, is at the Contemporary Art Museum of St. Louis. St. Louis in a, is that a, a piece called Insula? Yep. Yep. And. Um, and also at uh, Stonington Opera House. Um, those are her more recent works. Um, we're looking at a work by Christian Jankowski called This I Played Tomorrow, and it's for 2003. And what's interesting for me about it, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this, is the relationship it creates between the filmmaker and their audience, and also um, the people, the, the, the idea of artists who are collaborating with their audience, which I also, you do in your own work. Um, you do interactive works that often um, work off of uh, your viewers' movements and uh, incorporate them. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly. I think that this is a, it's a really interesting example of where the where the bar is somehow dropped a little bit. So it's like we're seeing behind the the set, even while we're seeing the set. So, right. So the artifice is really what the, what the subject matter is. Right. And when you have when you draw viewers in like that, they are responsible for making decisions about what they see and evaluating and responding to it in a in a kind of different way than when the magic is on 100% and you you're kind of taken for the ride. Right. So in some ways, even though this is set up in a in a way that creates a, a passive spectator. Um, there still are these these three video monitors that give you an idea of um, of the original um, interviews that the filmmaker based his script on, and the people that he pulled off the streets who play the roles in the 35 millimeter short. Um, and so, what's interesting in here is you have these side by side, um, and that the original narration is about what these actors who are trying to go into the industry find is meaningful right, and what right. they believe the message is in film or right. don't believe the message is and then they have to act that right. in these pseudo narratives that are you know born out full flash in, in a Hollywood style not yeah. <laughs> what's really I think what I love about I mean I'm a big fan of artifice being revealed is that you have both their sincerity in terms of what they say because they have said it before as answers to these interview questions but also a sense of that they're somehow co-creating there's this kind of excitement they have um, they really are hungry you know <laughs> as actors to kind of to, to, to feel that fantasy right Right, and it's also nice to circle back 
So, for example, when um, the elder lady who says in the context of the film to her child, or her grandchild rather, oh, if you think I'm ugly, don't tell me, don't tell me. Yeah. And then you read it again or, you know, on the screen in the context of what do you want your viewers to think or what would you like your viewers to do? And she says the same thing. If you think I'm ugly, don't say it. Right. So it means something totally different. That's the same words from the same woman feet away. So, yeah, so I think that when the interviews are happening, it's meaningful to them personally. Mm -hmm. And then I think what Joukowsky's trying to do is he's trying to create this environment where using the, what is it, the Sinachita um, studios, um, an environment which kind of creates like a larger, tries to put it in a context of a larger meaning. It's almost, and we were talking earlier about this, a kind of religiosity. I mean, these sets look very kind of ancient that they're in, and the costumes they're wearing seem very kind of ancient. And they seem like they're kind of out of like, what are they call those films like Blood and Sandal films, you know, which are these kind of... For me, I associate like Italian exploitation films with a lot of those <laughs> costumes, and you know, kind of like Hercules, the Hercules films or uh, Samson films. Um, but it's mixed in with someone like in a chef hat and in everyday kinds of costumes. So there's it's there's no one classification, but they all appear iconic in some way. Right. I think that you're right. I think there's a really a, a bizarre merging of um, filmic traditions and more spiritual or religious or magical traditions, right. which his work always has. It has this really interesting exploration of traditions and ceremonies in our cultures right. that are viable. Right. So whether it's the psychic that he consults or the evangelical minister in Texas or you know, the talk shows, he, he goes to these places where we look for belief right, and right. looks at them uh -huh. kind of with a hard lens right. to see like why that's absurd, but it's still you have so many convictions inside of that practice. Yeah. I mean the film in some ways has become this this religious or ritualized space mm -hmm. where we play ourselves but our super cells or our, our, uh, an exaggerated sense of ourselves but here he's also giving them the costumes from the studios to play the characters they've always wanted to play mm -hmm. so we're seeing people not only people like living out their fantasy this is great because you can see she's really into walking into the in with that dress mm -hmm. she's like this is the moment she's lived for right. and then when, when, it, when it turns around and you see that the dress is kind of badly buttoned up oh, at the back <laughs> <laughs> it's like the curtain, you know, oops, reveals. Yeah. But that is, he, he also is very interested in kind of that ironic, it's sincere, but it's also absurd. Mm -hmm. So that early piece, I guess from 2001 that he did, which has a lot of echoes, I, yeah. I feel like in this, when he goes around and shoots, the, you know, he's a starving artist, so right, he goes right. to the supermarket and shoots with a bow and arrow all of the items that he wants to purchase. Oh, that's really good. And he literally, he shoots them. Oh, that's really so his shopping cart gets filled with, uh, you know, a sugar bag that has an arrow in it, uh, uh -huh. you know, and he has that same kind of 
he asks the actors to do the same thing here, think about who they are, try to identify their desires, and then act them out. Yeah. So it's a... It's really... It's fun, too, because I, uh, sitting here with you and talking about this... So is, it, is it done up badly, or is that the bow? Maybe that's the... No, <laughs> it's, it's completely... You can see it yeah. everywhere, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, for us, like, is that an evil laugh that we're having, or is that in fact kind of a delight? Because what happens with Hollywood seamless films is that we're not allowed to see the human quality, the everyday quality. And this is something that's an interesting thing, which is the film is actually a release from the pressures of perfection. Um, that film often will put on our imagination. You know, I could never be that. I could never be a, a great singer because even though I love to sing, I don't have the perfect voice. It's like, it's, it's about something very different. It's about our belief in our own fantasies being enough as opposed to some kind of professionalized perfection that I think, you know, Hollywood perhaps creates through really high production values. Although I have to say this is a 35 millimeter film and it's, you know, it's it's really not. High I mean, production it, values. Yeah, it's got yeah. high production values. It's just I think that it also allows for these people to really just be people. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, and it also lets you the way he's juxtaposed the two. You see the effort, or you see yeah. yeah, you see what it takes to go from being yourself to being your imagined self yeah. or your desired self. Yeah. And you, as the viewer, can you're able to juxtapose and hold both ideas or both senses of the person at the same time, yeah. which is what makes it so real, I think, yeah. and makes it funny. It's yeah. Like, yeah, that is exactly what we do all the time. We'd like to have lost 30 pounds, but we haven't lost 30 <laughs> <laughs> There's also a thing that happens with the monitors, which is that people start to make the connections if they look at the monitors in the back of the screen. I mean, it's very, I think the, the film itself is very involving, but when they look back at the screen, they start to notice, oh, that's the same actor mm -hmm. and those that's the same dialogue so they start to make these connections between the everyday person on the street in the interview and then the transformed person in this kind of the, this the fantasy magic space of film there's also a kind of a, a, a channeling of energy or a kind of coherence in the energy in the 35 millimeter film that you don't feel oh, right. that's why I feel like in the monitor in those outtake views uh -huh. you see the kind of frenetic uh, I don't say frenetic but just uh, the, the rough edges so people can't think of what to say they are cut off guard right. they're sort of generally enthusiastic but they don't have the controlled pure uh, direction of energy that these different scenes contextualize so you're really juxtaposed with the everyday chaos and then this kind of yeah. pure narrative forms which never happen in real life but you really desire them because they let you immerse yourself in a kind of calm, focused emotional space right it's interesting too because what she's she's saying right now is she's telling this kind of lover character to to live to to live this moment but of course it's a fictionalized moment but it's this idea that somehow they're free in this to to truly escape except what they're escaping to is really just a world without cell phones, a world without computers, a world without you know text messaging, without all the interruptions that we have from just actually kind of being connected to our own 
to, to an experience that somehow feels more... It's a fantasy experience, but maybe it's a, a, a far more kind of reflective experience mm -hmm. or some kind of experience mm -hmm. of maybe being in our bodies. I think that that might be a subtext here. It questions what reality really, what we want reality to be. Right, right. And, uh, and also what our, it, it doesn't question our vehicles for exploring those. I mean, it wants you to, to um, <coughs> accept the many different types of vehicles we have for letting imagination be real. Right. So film is certainly one and video and any kind of narrative yeah. and any kind of scene is is a vehicle for realism in this argument. Right. A vehicle for letting our imagination be real. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that somehow it's letting our imagination be real instead of having to be tugged back and tugged back into this kind of information age over and over and over. Right. The information is all generated by their fantasies. It's all generated by something they'd want to be a character or something they want to manifest. It's from their imagination. Yeah. But I see what I mean by these spaces being kind of so deep and shadowy. Yeah, yeah and these crazy prehistoric figures emerging from the cavernous <laughs> depths of whatever this is, like the Colosseum or something. Now, what, like for me, the characters are interesting. What makes a person want to be this character is someone who maybe feels like he can be more primal this way, you know? He can yeah. be more connected to something that he usually can't be connected to. Right, and yeah. he's the person who's supposed to have invented or brought language to the human race, I guess. Oh, is that? Yeah, that's what he says. This caveman, I guess, believes that he was Dante's precursor. And, uh, Do you see in the tower, there's a little black, a uh, little piece of yeah. black cloth blowing so you, can, oh, yes, so you, so you can't can tell that it's a facade? All of a sudden you can see, oh, that's a facade there. <laughs> it's really great. All of these characters are amazing because it's such a hodgepodge of centuries and genres. Yeah. I like this idea of film. It's filmmaking as a kind of party that you—it's like a party. That's what I get constantly. Yeah, yeah. But that's an interesting point that you bring up of what makes the viewer feel more passive or dominated by a media versus drawn into and participating in the media. Yeah. That is something that I've thought a lot about in, in trying to think a lot about in my work. How interaction with a work, in my work, I'm looking at movement in particular, and how the human body generates these visual impressions that are very hard to capture uh -huh. um, and how you capture it basically by collecting a lot of ideas in your brain and you hold on to those images and all those images together equal your experience of movement huh. so in something like this he's doing the same thing he's asking us to use a lot of our different ideas of what is going on in the piece and holding that all together in our mind at the uh -huh. same time to give a kind of multimodal or multidimensional view of what is real, what is the narrative, what is the subtext, and what is you know, what we take on. So in some ways, yeah, the viewer is active. There has to be an active thinker when they're looking at this. They have yeah. to piece it together because it's non-linear, but it's not troubling. For some reason, there's a real pleasure to this. And I'm, I think because it's partly because it's a contained space. So the space, for me, the space itself maybe is what is unifying you know, what's happening on another level. You know? mm -hmm. And that we feel complicit with the actors because we've seen who they really are as people, and we 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 have a kind of interview interviewee right. uh, relationship with them on the monitors. That then when we see them on a set, kind of up 
and down and in a different relationship visually. We already know what they're like, you know, one-to-one. So so he's using a mode that maybe we're used to from reality television in a certain sort of way, that we follow these, we, we, we get to know these characters and then we kind of follow them and they can do all kinds of things and entertain us, but it's a different, it's not reality te- television. No, right, because it's, with, I mean, the, the text is what makes it, yeah. the text is really, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of super kind of religious, got a lot of religious qualities to it, philosophical qualities. And it's also um, deadpan. It's these, I mean, it's these sort of beliefs that are all delivered deadpan and as if it was a script for this role that they're playing. So there's a you sense the kind of replacement of those words onto a new scene. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think the deadpan thing allows us again to project into the film our own feelings about the words they're saying. Mm-hmm. So it, again, it allows us to use our imagination more. Yeah. The fact that they're not great, great, like amazing actors allows us to be more, to make it work more. I mean, again, that's what I'm liking about things that show their artifice is that they ask us to to make it realer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, it just it without the. Having it be less polished means it just feels more accessible in this case. Um, I think that is something that we're now so used to with media kind of saturating us in every corner, and it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be the you know the most the the Mona Lisa of advertisements or the Mona Lisa of videos for us to read something out of it. I do think also the scale is important, like this being so large scale and the monitors being so small and intimate really lets you kind of let this dominate you and then you in your own pace can be drawn into the monitors and feel less intimidated by that, that sort of smaller level information. Mm-hmm. And this really has that, it is conjuring, you know, we go to the movies, we sit there, we let right. the movies sort of wash over us and take us to some other... Right. It's interesting because he's actually, we're, we're having to choose between film and TV in a certain sort of way when you come into this room. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Which, which will you look at? Yeah. Right. And also that there's multiple things happening on it's not one TV, it's three TVs. So you can never choose, your attention is always basically directed by you. Right. So you're, you are in control of what's being seen when you look at the monitors yeah. and you're not. Someone else is dictating what ah. you're seeing at a given moment on the film. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it is much more like this is real life and you use your own filters in uh-huh. real life, right? That's great, yeah. So there is, I mean, and also these are, <coughs> the, the studios themselves that these are shot are actually used for um, fascist propaganda films. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So. What's interesting about this really? studio, yeah, it was on the outskirts of Rome. The interesting about the studio is that built into it are, um, I mean, it's been used for all kinds of things, but that's part of its history. So the idea of having kind of one, just one immersive kind of point of view here and, and multiple points of view with the uh, monitors uh-huh. is kind of, I don't know, I mean, that's a... That's I don't know how in the 40s and the 30s. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I've read. This is quite lovely because you. For me, I feel like oh, she's really. It's like she's really caring for that baby, but you know it's a doll because she's shaking that thing <laughs> like right. it's got. <laughs> right, but it also has that incredible pathetic 
you know, she's projecting all of her own insecurities and requiring that the, the baby's love or to support and, you know, basically become like the psychiatrist to all of her neuroses. You're like, oh my God, that poor child. Oh my God. Well, now we can go on and talk about the uh, Mothers and Fathers video. Oh, right. <laughs> well, anyway, anything else that comes to mind here? I think, I feel like this has been great. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fantastic piece to open the whole exhibit. I yeah. really do because it gives you a lot of ideas that are then, you know, each sort of individually is returned to as you walk through and you kind of realize that he's juggling with a lot of different levels and um, kind of counterpoints, which are where the point resides is really in the juxtaposition of ideas rather than a single. You're not allowed to just take the thing on face value. Yeah. You really can't. Yeah. And so you really, in all of these works too, I feel like you have to sit with them for at least 10 minutes before you even are at the surface level of what the artistic intent is. Right, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's, de- it's very dense in that way. The, the show really requires us to come back and look at it again. I feel like when I had first watched this, I felt like it was sadder than it is after talking to you. It seems like it's there's far more humor, there's far more kind of a um, an empathy for his characters or for the people who are, who are doing the characters, I think. And there's a real earnest... Uh Advocacy for imagination yes. as a true vehicle for human expression or for yeah. you know what it is to be human. And I think that is what's sort of funny. Like he's he's taking the piss. He's sort of undermining what this narrative fictional structure is, but he's not undermining the fact that in all the texts they are really advocating imagination as a vehicle for truth. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much.